Russia has unveiled a shiny new laser system called Perisvet. Perisvet? Perisvet. That's the monk who probably didn't exist, who was meant to have fought in the glorious triumph that wasn't quite the triumph maybe people thought. So let me tell you a little bit about the Battle of Kulikovo from 1380 and why it matters 640 years later. It's the 11th day of the shadowy Christmas and the last cell cast of this particular batch. So, happy 4th of January to my patrons and 11th of January to everyone else. So, I'm going to be talking about the Battle of Kulikovo. And before we can get to Perisvet, I'm afraid you're going to have to allow me to start rather further back. This was a climactic conflict that took place in 1380. And it's a battle where Dmitry Donskoy, Prince of Moscow, took on the Golden Horde and won. And he did win. But just the scale, the nature and the implications of that victory have been rather embroidered. And interestingly, they were embroidered from the moment the battle was won. What had been happening? Well, to understand that, you've got to understand Moscow's role during the period of Mongol occupation of Russia. When the Mongols took the country, Moscow was mm, not even a small town. It was really a large village with a fortunate confluence of trade routes. However, it was going to be crucial because at a time when the grand old capital is not quite the right word, but certainly dominant city of Kiev had been sacked and destroyed. And the cosmopolitan Nordic city of Novgorod, a trading city first and foremost, had very happily and quickly surrendered, realising otherwise what would happen. Moscow emerged instead as a den of, well, to put it on a very, very crude note, quizlings. The princes of Moscow realised there was vast amounts of wealth and power to be made by being the most efficient, the most assiduous, the most enthusiastic of the Golden Horde's Russian agents. And that's exactly what happened. Over time, though, just as Moscow rose thanks to this, particularly using it as an opportunity to knock out their various rivals, they reached a point when the Golden Horde's power seemed to be waning, and Moscow's capacity to use that for its own advantages seemed to be being plateaued. And this is the point when Dmitry Donskoy took the opportunity, as he saw it, to try and slightly renegotiate Moscow's relationship with Sarai, the capital of the Golden Horde, to his advantage. But this is a key point. He was not looking for independence for Russia from the Mongols, who, after all, were extraordinarily savage conquerors, but surprisingly even-handed and indeed light-touch overlords. At the time, the Golden Horde was in the hands of a man by the name of Mamai. Now, his problem was he was facing up-and-coming rivals, including a much, much more aggressive and effective general by the name of Toktamish. So when Dmitry Donskoy was looking to renegotiate, actually Mamai was desperate for two things. One was money, silver, which he could then use to raise armies, pay off allies and generally shore up his position against Toktamish. And the second thing is he needed authority. He needed to show that he was a general. Mamai's 
reputation and his skills were essentially as a courtier and a politician. So he needed a win. So what happened was actually he pushed back and he put much, much greater taxation demands upon the Russians. Now, the interesting thing is Dmitry Donskoy did not want to make a fight of it. He's actually trying to get together all the extra money to pay off Mamai when he hears that, in fact, the Golden Horde's forces are marching anyway. Mamai has basically forced the issue, and therefore Dmitry Donskoy has no choice but to fight. And in particular, he's aware that Mamai, as well as raising mercenaries, particularly from, from Crimea, collection of Armenians, various other tribesmen, and indeed uh, Genoese mercenaries, worth noting. After all, Crimea was at the time a Genoese and Venetian trading station. He has also reached out to Lithuania. And Yogaila, the Duke Yogaila, has started marching with, at the head of an army of his own. So Donskoy, Dmitry Donskoy, though he's not yet known as Dmitry Donskoy of the Don, that would be the... Um, name he would acquire as a result of his victory at Kulikovo, but hey, I'll call him that anyway. Dmitri knows that he has to move, he has to move fast, and he can't afford to let himself be caught in this pincer. So he musters. He musters the forces of all the Russian cities he can count on, which is not all of them, because many of them, quite frankly, mistrust him and Moscow, often with pretty good reasons. He musters, he marches through Kolomna, which incidentally, if you've not visited, it's a wonderful, glorious little gem of a, a Russian city, not too far out of Moscow, on a nice, fast uh, Lastochka um, train. Definitely worth adding to your itinerary. Marches down and meets the Golden Horde's forces at Snipes Field, Kulikova. Donskoy wants to engage Mamai quickly before he can be reinforced both by his Lithuanians and also by the forces of the Russian Principality of Ryazan. Aliyeg of Ryazan may not have had much enthusiasm for the Golden Horde, but he realised that he basically had to throw in his lot with them or else they would sack his city. Mamai, likewise, he needs a quick victory. He's impatient. He wants to get back to Sarai with the, the fruits of his victory. So both of them are happy to push and engage fast. The Golden Horde has, not least thanks to its extra auxiliaries and mercenaries and so forth, a larger army. On the other hand, Donskoy is more cunning. In some cases, it's uh, tactical misdirections. For example, he dresses up one of, one of his retainers in his armour and puts him at the front of, of, of the battle line. The uh, Mongol Tatar forces obviously make a great drive to get at him and kill him, which they duly do. And the Russian horde is wavering. But then, lo and behold, Dmitri reveals that actually, no, it wasn't him. No one seems to stop and thought, yeah, you're happy to get someone killed for you. No, instead, they're all delighted. More to the point, though, Donskoy cleverly moves a substantial group of mounted knights into a forest, which is going to be on the right flank of the, the Mongol Tatar forces, the so-called ambush regiment, which at a crucial moment, when, when the Russians are being pushed back, pivoted away from the river, which is at their backs, storms out, all fresh, slams into the Mongol Tatar flank, breaks those forces, and what as what tends to happen in battles is once one unit starts to run, not only does it disrupt the order of the rest, it also demoralizes the rest. It leads to a rout, and a glorious Russian victory. But 
this is not actually a victory over the Golden Horde full stop. It's a victory over Mamai's field force. That's it. And in fact, it's worth noting, I mean, Mamai falls. In fact, he ends up uh, fleeing to Crimea, where the Genoese, acutely aware of the fact that Toktamish is offering a good price on his head, and also that Mamai sacrificed Genoese mercenaries to cover his escape, dutifully and dutifully murder him. But anyway, Toktamish in 1382 marches into Russia and indeed sacks and burns Moscow. And the Russians will have to pay tribute to the Golden Horde for another hundred years before they finally throw off the so-called Mongol yoke, though no one at the time would have called it that. But that said, first of all, look, this is a genuine victory for the Russians. It was a quite extraordinary triumph of generalship, given that, in fact, the Golden Horde had all kinds of different advantages. It's in part thanks to Donskoy's cunning, but it's also, in fairness, actually a testament to the toughness and the effectiveness of the Russian soldiers. But the second point is the way it was spun, and spun right from the beginning, was very striking. Donskoy had, first of all, the church on his side, and therefore the church became, in many ways, his main spin merchants. He had tame chroniclers who were very happy quickly to, to represent this, not just as a victory, but as a divinely inspired victory. All kinds of tales how at the crucial moment angels appeared and a divine wind blew back the Mongols' arrows and so forth. Indeed, Donskoy even actually marched deliberately with a whole collection of traders from all around Russia in his entourage, precisely so that they would go back to their respective cities with tales of this grand victory. So from right from the beginning, there was a clear understanding of the importance of presenting a great victory rather than just purely winning one. And it's still very much present today, if anything, even more so. It's once again been brought back, and not just with the, the use of the Perisvet laser. So let me just talk about that, Perisvet. Perisvet was a monk, a warrior monk, who right at the beginning of the battle is meant to have challenged an, a hitherto unbeatable Mongol champion, uh, Chelube, I think, but that's just from memory, I could be wrong. And the two men met in a massive clash of arms, and in fact both killed the other. But Perisvet's corpse stayed in the saddle, unlike the, the Mongols, so that's regarded as kind of victory on points. All very stirring. However, there is absolutely no evidence at all that Perisvet actually existed, or that there was any substantial contribution of warrior monks at the battle. But who cares? It's a great story. And so Perisvet is not just used as a name for laser, it's also, for example, used for a special forces unit of the National Guard. There is a substantial uh, monument towards this victory at the Victory Park on uh, Paklonaya Hill in Moscow. And indeed, the largest submarine in the world is, of course, called the Dmitry Donskoy. I could go on. There's all kinds of other examples, as well as a really rather splendid museum, actually, at the site of Kudakova. So what, though? What's the big deal? Well, beyond just simply a useful reminder that spin is by no means a new concept, the way in which this battle and the whole narrative around it, because it was very much presented as when Russia finally got up off its knees and freed itself from the yoke. Well, the way that that has now been picked up very much, I think, says something about Putin's attempt to create a 
syncretic national story, gathering it from all kinds of bits and pieces and other hitherto separated narratives of a kind of upward arc of triumph, of a of Russian triumph against foreign enemies who seem, whether it's numerically or technologically or in some other way, stronger, yet who are ultimately defeated by the application of Russian wit and will. Because that's very much, I would say, the leitmotif of today's political war with the West. There is an understanding that in aggregate terms, whether we're talking about number of troops or GDP or even technology, the West is undoubtedly stronger. But Russia has the wit, the cunning, and also the will, the daring to triumph. So Kulikov very much fits into that, that same narrative. And more broadly, look, myths matter. They're one of the ways in which people and nations define themselves, cohere themselves, and separate themselves in their own minds from the rest of the world. It's not, for example, just or purely a bizarre fixation of Putin's to constantly, as he does now, push back against what he regards as Western and Western-inspired attempts to tarnish the Soviet Union's glorious exploits of the Great Patriotic War, though it does get pretty obsessive when he seems to raise it every single time these days. It is, in fact, because he regards this as really important. He regards this as a truly formative moment for modern Russia, and he cannot allow it to be diluted by moral ambiguities. The moral ambiguities are inevitable, given the extent to which Stalin was involved. You know, likewise, the importance of victories such as over Napoleon in 1812. Now, one can say, well, Napoleon's supply lines were overexerted and so forth. It doesn't matter, though. The point is there has to be a glorious Russian victory. Because this is it. Russia is in a new moment of what I would call contested redefinition. You know, Putin is having to push so hard to successfully transform Russia's self-image into being a martial state, uh, a veritable modern Sparta, unified, a fortress in a sea of the degenerate and the destructive. And the reason why he's having to push so hard is because it's not really working. Yes, of course, people like to be told that they're special. And we British have been known to fall prey to that particular vice ourselves. But the point is, this is, as I say, a contested issue. Others have very, very different views of what they want to see Russia, whether they want to see it as a liberal capitalist economic powerhouse or a socially liberal European state or just simply another country, whatever. Symbols like Kulikovo, they become part of the struggle to define Russia. And that is, I find, again, again, this is a theme that I've sort of come to before, optimistic. We can look at the often toxic propaganda coming out on state TV or being pushed out by pundits who have the favour of the Kremlin or who would desperately want to have the favour of the Kremlin and what they say about Russia and what they say about the outside world. We should not forget, though, that the very stridency, the very volume, the very tone of these people, what makes it so extreme is because they are aware that otherwise this is not working. So Kulikova, absolutely a, a, a fascinating conflict. 
a genuine Russian victory, and also, in some ways, a new battlefield, part of the new battlefield to redefine modern Russia. And on that note, I will end. Thank you very much. This is the last of the cellcasts being released as part of the 12 Days of Shadowy Christmas. I hope you've enjoyed them, and next We'll be back to a more normal stage.